มูทสามกัวทัวรหัตัวสมาสัมบุทัสามนมูทสามกัวทัวรหัตัวสมาสัมบุทัสามนมูทสามกัวทัวรหัตัวสมาสัมบุทัสามพุทธังนมังสังขังนมัสสามs a n g a r a t n a g i r i very happy to welcome Matthew into the community, taking up the Anagarika training with us here. And I can say that I personally always find it a a delightful thing uh, when somebody wants to make this commitment, this statement of of uh, both willingness and interest to. Submit themselves to what is quite a rigorous and challenging discipline, not a not a small matter. Uh, keeping the eight precepts, twenty four seven. For those who've never done it, it maybe doesn't seem such a big deal. But these uh, these renunciation precepts actually symbolise quite a lot, and. They, uh, in effect, can cut quite deep. They, they they stir up things that we perhaps hadn't anticipated. Our our deep and sometimes subtle attachments get stirred up when we make a public statement like this. That it's not just the the normal five precepts, but also the extra renunciation precepts that that put us under some pressure and. However, if uh, anybody's interested in in really making the adventure to inquire into the actuality of this heart and mind, <clears throat> this human experience, then it does take energy. It does take. Passion. It takes pressure, and of course, that's not all it takes. Um, as I've spoken about many times before, uh, embark on this this difficult journey without a great deal of patience and a good dose of humility and a heart of loving kindness. These. These qualities also are absolutely essential, but we can have a lot of patience uh, and uh, a good dose of humility and a, and uh, a heart radiant with loving kindness. But if we don't submit ourselves to intensity, if we don't find a way of generating uh, intense energy, then it's probably the case that we don't. Get past a certain point, and so this inquiry, this adventure that tonight Matthew is is uh, embarking on in this renunciate uh, convention of uh, Theravadan Buddhist monasticism, uh, not just taking up uh, renunciate precepts, but also publicly aligning oneself with the refuges, and now. For many people, they come to Buddhism and these rituals of 
I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha, and I determine the five precepts. Sometimes people are in a little bit of a hurry to get past these things and get on with the real thing, like uh, having some interesting meditation states and so on. However, I've seen a lot of people have very interesting meditation states uh, over the years, but the task of living out of whatever interesting, sometimes subtle, maybe even profound mind states one might discover in meditation, the task of living out of that, the task of really bringing that into the world, the task of grounding that, is something else altogether. I'm sure all of us have had the experience of sitting in some degree of tranquility and feeling nice and calm and peaceful, and then you get up and somebody just does something vaguely irritating and you have a big blow-up, and maybe even worse than you used to have before. And you think, so what's good, what's this, what good is this meditation practice if, if it doesn't help me deal with my, my greed and my aversion, my love and my hate? That's, that's a good question. What good is this meditation? Well, some people will just run back to doing more meditation and, and become some sort of a meditation junkie and where they keep shooting themselves up with with samadhi and uh, keeping all the frightening stuff under control. Well, you know, maybe some people manage to do that for a good number of years, but for a lot of people, they can't hack it, and so sadly they give up. Well, it's not necessary to give up. The uh, inspirations that we might, the inspiration that might arise from uh, a little meditation practice, a little exercise of discipline, uh, there are ways of, of skillfully learning how to bring that into the rest of our life, into daily life practice. So yes, there's formal practice, but yes, there's daily life practice, and these two things need to work together. And one of the best ways of, of integrating our formal meditation practice into daily life is by taking the refuges and precepts seriously, really contemplating them, really... Considering what does it mean when I say, I go for refuge to the Buddha? What it means is that we're orienting our hearts and minds in this direction. We're honoring this, the Buddha. We're bowing down to this, the Buddha. And we put Buddha image up in high places. And everybody puts pictures up in their house, whether it's a, a poster of your favorite rock group or or whether it's a, uh, a nice wave to surf on or, or pictures of the family and friends, whatever, we have these pictures because images remind us of that, which ma- things that matter to us. These photos remind us of things that really matter to us. And, and if we're smart, we'll stop and consider, well, you know, some things matter more than others. In fact, there are some things that matter profoundly. There are some heart matters that transcend all other concerns. So having, having friends and family, having nice holidays and, and knowing how to ride your surfboard or go snorkeling or, or, or whatever else it is one might do for relaxation and entertainment, all of that is good, all of that is okay, but we also know that none of it lasts and that uh, all day sickness and death are always there. 
And yeah, it may be that you live to be a ripe old age and you don't have a lot of sickness, but it is guaranteed that eventually old age, sickness and death will come to all of us. And are we ready for it? Have we spent our life cultivating consciousness in a way whereby that when all of this is about to be taken from us, all of our friends, all of our pleasures, all of the good food, all of the good health, all of it is about to disappear, are we ready to go with it? Of course, we're not talking about bringing it on here, we're not talking about enhancing it, but we're talking about can we meet it um, adequately? Or are we spending our life developing um, resistances, indulging and resisting? This is the what in the classic Buddhist speak is the, the way of the world. What the Buddha did for the first 29 years of his life, he indulged in pleasure, got very good at it, and uh, he was uh, well-recognized, masterful at um, seeking pleasure out of the sensory existence. But then at the age of 29, he had this great recognition of old age, sickness and death. Never noticed these things before. And there they were, kapow, old age, sickness and death in front of him. And as tends to happen for a lot of people around about the age of 29, it was a major turmoil, a major upset. And so then he went to the other extreme. So from indulging in pleasure, he went to denying pleasure, into asceticism for several years. And then that didn't work. And then, thankfully, he came back to what we now come to know and call the middle way, the way of awareness, the way of investigation, the way of wisdom, the way of compassion. And this is the way that is beyond indulgence and pleasure and denial of pleasure. So all of us have these habits of indulgence and denial and how do we address it? How do we effectively address it? So this is what the refuges and precepts are about. So when we say, I go for refuge to the Buddha, what we're saying is that this consciousness that the Buddha realized, this possibility of edgelessness, the Buddha's consciousness had no edges. Because the Buddha had dissolved all ignorance, there were no habits of clinging anymore. Experience was what it was. Everything was just so. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions were just what they are, agreeable and disagreeable. The Buddha enjoyed sitting in lovely bamboo groves and enjoyed eating juicy mangoes and enjoyed the company of of friendly, uh, uh, delightful people and also felt the pain of... Uh, disappointment uh, when his friends died and when he had pain in his back. Uh, Pleasure and pain didn't disappear for the Buddha, but what did disappear for the Buddha was all suffering. So we all have pleasure and pain, but we have something extra. We have suffering. uh, Because we don't perceive the world clearly, because of our habits of indulging and denying, we keep creating these smoke screens, these fires, greed, aversion and delusion, these fires are flaring up and, and cloud our vision. And as a result, we see things as worth clinging to when in fact they're not worth clinging to. Experiences, all experiences are just so. The agreeable and disagreeable experiences are what they are. They're just so. Honey tastes sweet, lemons taste sour. 
That's it. Lemons will always taste sour. doesn't matter what we do, lemons will always taste sour. That's the truth. Fire will always burn. But what we can do, what we can do about it, is understand the nature of fire. Fire is it's good stuff if we know how to keep it in the fireplace. Uh, it heats your room up and you can use it to boil a kettle, make a nice cup of tea. Yeah, fire is fine. It's a form of energy. But our relationship to that energy matters. If our relationship with that energy is a wise relationship, guess what? We don't stick our hand in the fire. We don't cling to it. Because we know if we do, we'll get burnt. Well, similarly, our relationship to all experience, all experience is changing. All experience is in a state of flux. And anybody wants to disagree with that, well, then they can investigate it until they can prove otherwise. But the reality is that all conditions are unstable. Everything that has the condition to arise and be born has the condition to die and cease. That means everything's in a state of change. Everything's in a state of flux. And what happens if we cling to it? Well, we create tension. We create stress. But that's something we're doing. We're doing the suffering. The reality is the way things are. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touches and mental impressions. Agreeable company, agreeable food, disagreeable company, disagreeable weather. All of these things are just so. But does our consciousness see these things as just so, as the Buddha did? Or does our consciousness make something out of it? The tendency is to indulge and to deny. And through our lack of awareness, our lack of wisdom, lack of clear seeing, we create what we call problems. Actually, there are no problems. Life doesn't have any problems, but we do create them. And we feel like we've got them, then we feel we've got to solve them. And then we go round and round in circles trying to solve all these problems. And even in the spiritual world, a lot of the time we're just creating problems. So what do we do about it? Well, this is why we go for refuge to the Buddha. The Buddha's consciousness was completely beyond any inclination to create a problem out of anything. The Buddha's investigation into experience taught him the actuality, the nature of impermanence, and with the clear seeing, with the pristine clear seeing, not just the occasional sort of, oh yeah, it's all impermanent, okay, oh well, whatever. It wasn't like that. It was an absolute, focused, pristine awareness that saw clearly the nature of all conditions. And with that clear seeing came the letting go. And for the Buddha, it was an absolute. Eventually, it was an absolute letting go, so it wasn't replaced with more clinging afterwards. For us, well, we have some moments of letting go here and there, and then we feel good when it happens, but then we tend to forget. So the momentum of my way the habit of clinging, the habit of indulging, the habit of denying, that's got a momentum which creates difficulties for us. So how do we meet that difficulty? Well, we need focus. And so we have this ritual, ritualized tradition of saying, I go for refuge to the Buddha, I go for refuge to the Dhamma, I go for refuge to the Sangha. I orient with my body, speech and mind, I orient my heart towards that which is truly worthy. Now, many people think this bowing, well, what is it? What's bowing? What bowing is, is using our body to train our hearts and minds to, you know, this is what really matters to me. Yes, the Buddha, of course, is a piece of bronze, and as such, is not terribly valuable, but what it symbolizes is profoundly valuable. 
And what it symbolizes is that human beings can, can stop doing what we're doing that creates suffering. We have this potential. And so the Buddha image symbolizes this for us. So when we lower our body in front of it, we're giving our whole being, our whole body-mind, a very clear message is saying that this is what matters to me. This matters to me. This possibility of, of cultivating a heart that is free from habits of indulging and denying, that a heart that knows how to let go, a heart and mind that knows how to see things the way they are without the haze, without the smoke screen of greed, aversion and delusion. So in this ritual today with Matthew taking up the, the training, the the journey of investigation into the true nature of things, orienting the heart and mind by way of body, by way of speech, with the chanting, body, speech and mind, orienting our hearts towards that which is limitless. Now the Buddha's consciousness, because it was free from all habits of clinging, manifests itself, the expression, the activity of a consciousness when it's free from habits of greed, aversion and delusion, is wisdom and compassion. For us, we've heard wisdom teachings and we've seen compassionate behavior and so we have an approximation of wisdom and compassion and we're very fortunate. But for us, it's not usually the real thing. For us, it's an approximation of wisdom and compassion. But we have this much and so we cultivate it. We assimilate these teachings, we recite these teachings, we reflect on these teachings and we cultivate them to the best of our ability until they start to become our own nature. But they're not going to become our own nature so long as we've still got these habits of clinging. And so the, the journey of investigation is not, is not one of trying to become spiritual, not one of trying to become wise or trying to become compassionate, but rather an investigation into that which is not wise, that which is not compassionate. And... And it takes a, uh, a sometimes rather grueling uh, uh, degree of honesty to be able to admit to ourselves how dishonest we are, how uncompassionate we are, how selfish we are. But the good news is that when we are able to admit to ourselves these limitations, then the truth starts to shine through. And so the way of indulging, the way of denying is the way of pretending. We, we have an image of ourselves that we keep pumping up and, and even if it's a spiritual image, it, we keep pumping it up and trying to become something that, that we feel good about and that other people feel good about. Uh, but that's terribly tedious and not honest. You know, what is honest is we stop pumping up this self, stop creating this artificial self and come back to looking honestly at what is. What is now? What is, what is the experience of loneliness? So now Matthew's committed himself to this, this course of strategic loneliness. He's going to be lonely forevermore. Well, hopefully not evermore. He's going to be lonely until he realizes that loneliness is really an indication of where we're denying the reality of our aloneness. The pain of loneliness is terrible. For monks and nuns, they've just got to go in their own boring room and be alone. 
no fund. And that's actually good fortune. That's fortunate because we're only going to be lonely so long as we're hanging on to the wrong thing. If we're hanging on to memories of good feelings we had in the past when we had good company and speculating about how it would be nice again if we had that again, that's just delusion. Now, the reality is right now, what? We're imposing these limitations on the moment of this experience. This, this pain of loneliness is actually, it's actually the indicator of where not only do we need to, but where we can yeah, let go. We're holding on to this idea of who we are. This is me. I am a lonely person. I am lonely. And it shouldn't be this way. I've got to solve it. I've got to go out and do something to stop feeling lonely. Well, those who are interested in reality turn around and bring the light of awareness inwards and actually embrace the feeling of loneliness. Welcome a loneliness. Tell loneliness you're really welcome. Loneliness, you're my best friend. In fact, you're my spiritual teacher and you bow down to loneliness and you ask loneliness, please teach me what I'm hanging on to here that's creating a problem. Reality, there's no problems with reality. If there's a problem with reality, the Buddha could never have gotten enlightened. Nobody could ever get enlightened if there's a problem with reality. There are no problems in reality. We create problems by not seeing reality. So a lot of the spiritual tasks, whether it is a renunciate or as a householder, a lot of the spiritual tasks that we all face is, is creating the resources, the strengths, the ability, so that we find that when we are met with a moment of suffering like loneliness or disappointment or sadness, instead of denying it, instead of indulging in it or, or avoiding it, we meet it. We meet it in terms of the middle way. We meet it head on, face on, say, this is how it is. This is the feeling of loneliness. This is the feeling of disappointment. Or anticipation feels like this. We meet it. We don't turn away from it. And if we have prepared ourselves properly, then that's a wonderful moment when we have the determination, when we have the clarity, when we have the mindfulness, when we have the ability to really meet our apparent suffering head on. That's the very moment, the very time that letting go can actually happen. So loneliness is not an indictment against who we are, it's just an indicator of where we need to look so that we can let go. And letting go of loneliness is like, is like going through a, a very narrow doorway and the other side is a much larger space than the one that we were living in. But sometimes these narrow doorways in life can look very intimidating. And so approaching them, going through them, it helps a great deal to have friends. If we don't have any spiritual friends, well, we can keep turning away from those narrow doorways over and over again because they all look too frightening. But if you have good friends who've been through some of those narrow doorways in life, they can say, well, yeah, it looks like that. It looks like you can't do it. It looks like you can't tolerate it. It looks like this is too much, but you don't have to believe it. Yeah. Rainbows, they really look real. They really do look real. They absolutely look like something. And you can go chasing after a rainbow. You can jumping over fences and running through fields full of bulls and through swamps and cross rivers and all sorts of crazy things trying to get to the source of the rainbow. Where is it? 
there is there is no there is nothing there other than an optical illusion it's very fooling and so it is with a lot of the both delightful and frightening mind states that we have to endure in our spiritual journey again whether as a as a renunciate or as a householder all of us are assailed from time to time by these sometimes beautifully seductive fantasies about what it would be like if I spend my credit card on buying that. And it is so convincing. Absolutely, really looks like it really will make me happy. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> and the frightening, terrifying, awful, threatening. This is, I'm going to be humiliated. I can't stand it. I absolutely cannot tolerate this humiliation. Well, maybe, maybe not. So again, having good friends who, when we meet these narrow doorways in life where suffering comes to us and, and these stories come into the mind that, that threaten us with uh, terrible scenarios that, or, or wonderful, enticing, seductive fantasies, our friends can also remind us. Maybe, maybe not. That's what spiritual friends are there for. When you feel like you're a complete failure, absolutely ruined everything in your life, your spiritual companions will come along and just say, well, that's one way of seeing it. You don't have to believe it. Or when you think that you're thoroughly enlightened and you're about to start creating a website, promoting your teachings, your good spiritual friends will come along and say, well, maybe you should just wait a while before you start that website. <laughs> Because maybe you're seriously deluded. So anyway, on this occasion of welcoming Matthew into the community, and we hope that um, we can all be a good friend for you, and we expect that you will be a good friend with us. We're sure that's the case. And if there's anything we can do that supports you in your cultivation of the holy life, we'll be very happy to do so. Here we are.